Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you guys on this Sunday morning. I don't know about you, but I hear that music and I'm up here like, don't dance in front of people. Don't, don't, uh, you know, okay, anyway, so that's just, maybe that's just me. Sorry about that. But uh, my name is Joe. If we've not met before, you might not want to now, but uh, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace and uh, excited to finish out a conversation we've been having called The Good Kind of Weird and what it means to kind of follow Jesus and some of the things that he said very specifically and uniquely about kind of following after him. But before we get into that, I'd like to kind of just address some things that have been happening. Um, If you haven't been living under a rock, you know that a major storm, Hurricane Harvey, hit the Houston area in force uh, over the last week, and there's lots of ways to respond, and certainly we want to be a part of that. And so uh, I was talking to one of my friends on the ground there, and they said that in the city limits of Houston alone, uh, there's over 136,000 homes that either were or are underwater. And so that's 136,000. There's only 245,000 people in Akron. And so to put that in the context, 136,000 homes, so pretty much as you drive home, no matter where you live, Imagine every one of those houses uh, being underwater and what that would take to clean that up. It's going to be a massive uh, effort. And so there's three ways that you can get connected to helping out with those things. The first of which is to pray. Uh, There's a lot of stress and emotion wrapped up when these things happen in these disastrous ways. So, you know, they've lost their house. They've lost their stuff. They've lost their furniture. Their cars went underwater. They're not sure where to turn. You can imagine the stress and the emotions of all of that is going to run high. And you can't even necessarily turn to your neighbor for help because they're in the same boat as you, uh, no pun intended. Um, so, um, too soon. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but uh, there, there's just so many ways in which we could be praying for people as they walk through those stressful situations. Uh, and we want to make sure that we're kind of uh, bathing them in prayer, so to speak. So make sure that you keep that up. Uh, the second thing is we can give. Um, there's lots of ways to do this. And of course, one of the big things is simply financially, there's going to be a lot of need and a lot of uh, supplies that are needed, a lot of initiatives that need to happen, a lot of rebuild that needs to happen. And so I want to uh, encourage you to find an organization that you trust, that you're excited to get behind in doing that. Uh, We have a fund set up to go toward uh, all of the victims of Hurricane Harvey and every dollar that'll be raised for that will go toward that effort. Um, We'll be using it to help, uh, you know, get the supplies out for teams and and make sure that people get what they need, whether it's food, water, the initiatives, the wood, whatever it takes, we'll be funneling it onto those areas and then anything left over, we'll be giving it to an organization that's on the ground that's spearheading a lot of those work teams. So if you'd like to give through us, you can certainly do that. Um, You can also collect some donations. Just make sure as much as possible that you try to do that in a wise way. Uh, Sometimes our emotions can get the best of us and we try to donate things that aren't necessarily used. So uh, just try to make sure you're following those lists. We're keeping our list as up to date as possible on what's actually needed and we'll be able to help that way through giving. And then the third thing is going, which I kind of hinted at just a second ago. We're going to be sending teams down to help with this effort. Um, the, The a conservative estimate is that this is going to take 18 to 24 months to uh, do some relief and then rehabilitation work to kind of get them back to normal. So this is going to be a long haul type of deal. We're going to have teams leaving as early as next weekend. And so if you want to be a part of a work team, we're going to be sending as many teams as we possibly can for as long as it's needed and as long as we can muster. So if that's something that you want to be involved in for a short while or a long while, you can sign up on our website or app, or there's even some folks in the lobby after the service, you can talk with them as well. Basically, uh, as tragic as this disaster is, it's a great opportunity to respond uh, and bring hope and show the love for those people through their, uh, their grief right now. So we want to be a part of that. All right? Now, as I mentioned, we're wrapping up a conversation called The Good Kind of Weird, and today we're going to appropriately be getting into this concept of love, because when we navigate what it is that Jesus called us to do to follow him, we realize that he actually asked us to do some weird things. Uh, Sometimes when we think about our ideologies in life, we think to ourselves like, well, I tend to lean more, you know, liberal, I tend to think that way more politically, so I'm going to kind of align my life with those things and then ask Jesus to kind of help me navigate that. Or the opposite, of course, where I tend to think more conservatively. I tend to align my life and my ideologies that way. I'm going to ask Jesus to help me do that. And I would argue, and I certainly think the scripture would attest, that Jesus is God and that his pathway is different and and bigger than, say, lining up with any one political entity. And so we're looking back historically, back at the words of Jesus. If we could have a face-to-face with him, what would it look like to follow him directly, to go after the way that Jesus would carve and actually 
to follow him and navigate life. And so we uh, certainly would realize that one of those things that he would call us to is this idea and understanding of love. That if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we're going to be known for love. And so I want to quickly talk through a couple of quick passages, the first of which is in John 13. John was one of Jesus' best friends, one of his key disciples, and he was recording these words of Jesus, and he says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think that's Jesus really emphasizing this key concept here of, listen, it's gonna be, you're gonna be known for how you interact with each other, how you love one another, and how you actually engage throughout life. And then in another instance, um, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is asked by a ruler, he actually says, what's the greatest commandment? What, of all the things that I could focus on as someone trying to connect with God, what's the most important thing. And Jesus responds with this. He says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything that would be entailed and what it means to follow Jesus, to follow God, to connect with our creator is going to be summed up in we need to love him and love other people. And so literally this, this is a weird concept. If we're going to be known as a follower of Jesus, if we're going to go after that way, then love is a key aspect of what that looks like. Now here's some good news because let's be honest, some of us are natural inclination is not to be a loving individual. I'm not pointing anybody out, but you know who you are. Okay. So, but here's some good news. As we decide to give our lives to Christ, as we ask him to forgive our sins, as we turn from trying to lead our own path to saying, God, I want to follow you. I want to connect with you. I want to engage God. He actually, as that transaction happens, as that salvation happens, his character is now being actually infused into us. Okay, so he actually takes the nature of Jesus and it becomes spiritually the nature of us. And so kind of like that song we were just singing, like we were once lost, now we're found. Like we were once stuck and completely uh, mired down in our own sin, in our own ways. And now Jesus is transplanting that character of who we naturally are now with the character of God. And so when we look at some of the things that God is and his characteristics, we see things like the fact that he's compassionate, that he's slow to anger, that he wants none to perish, that he serves, he protects, he loves, that he wants, uh, that he sacrifices himself for us. That type of nature actually becomes who we are. It becomes infused into us as a follower of Jesus. And then in following him, we begin to learn how that plays out in the fabric of who we are. Now, that's a really cool thing. And I've learned that for a long time because uh, I've actually, I grew up in church, or I should say really, I grew up in churches. Uh, growing up, my, my spiritual background was a little bit of kind of a spiritual mutt experience. And so all different kinds of backgrounds and uh, all within the Christian faith, but different things. So uh, I'll mention a few here. And if, you know, if you were part of that before and it offends you, I apologize. But at the same time, you kind of know exactly what I'm talking about. But I grew up, uh, for a while, I grew up in a Pentecostal tradition. And then for a while, I grew up in a Nazarene tradition. And then for a while, I was in a Presbyterian tradition. And then for a while, I was in a Baptist tradition. And then for a while, I was in like a, a gospel choir, kind of like soul tradition thing. It's like, this is the second time I wanted to dance in front of you guys. It's getting awkward. I'm done. Okay. But like it was, uh, I grew up in all these different traditions and it was a lot of fun to see uh, um, the, the, the similarity and the, the unity of Christ in all of those. And one of the neat things that I experienced in all of those environments was this neat like mutual devotion to one another. That as a part of those churches, there was like this family atmosphere that like, my goodness, if you're in help, I will help you. And if I'm in help, I can ask you to help me and we can kind of scratch each other's back, so to speak. And I got more hugs in those years at some of those churches that a, a one individual should ever get. Uh, it was like hug, hug, hug. And I will still remember this guy named John. When you saw him, you knew he was going to give you a back rub and say, how you doing? How was your week? And it seems like a nice gesture until you realize that I think John's goal was to get his middle finger and his thumb to touch in between your shoulder. It was like, oh, every time, just like, and I'm not a small guy, and he still would like get me to buckle. Like he just went after it. I don't rub my back. It brings back bad memories. It's bad. <laughs> I had a bad experience. But um, 
there was just this constancy of this neat mutual devotion to one another that I loved watching. And when I remember that passage in John 13 about you should be known for your love one another, I often think back to those days and, and here too as well. But as I've gotten to know more and more of the scripture, as I've sought after Jesus even more and more on my own and began to hear really some of the teaching that I learned growing up, I realized that the love of God is actually more than just this like mutual devotion. That the love that we're called to is not simply if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's not just contractual because what happens is, is there's often this, this love that like, if you do what I hope you do and you do your part in our relationship, I will gladly love you. And that's often how it can play out with people, right? Like, my goodness, well, if you're amazing, I'll be amazing. But if you're not amazing, I'm out. And I even saw that as, unfortunately, and some of us had this experience too, as you transition sometimes even from maybe one church to the next, even if it's for unescapable reasons, sometimes you see some of that devotion get cut off because you're no longer scratching their back. And it's like, Jesus, there has to be more than that. And I think he certainly would attest that there is. And so I want to take a look at a passage together in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the chairs in front of you, or you can open up an app or Google it uh, on the church app as well. You can follow along with the scripture and some notes there. But we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. This is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew was one of the uh, disciples of Jesus, and he's uh, right at this point in chapter 5, he's recording what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus is teaching actually a lot of kind of cross-cultural, cross, uh, there are unnatural ways to think about how to follow God, but he's clarifying these points. Um, and, and so thousands of people have gathered to hear him teach through these things. And in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 43, uh, he begins this way. He says, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let's stop there for a second. Many of us might not default to saying, I hate my enemy. Now, maybe in some cases we would, but in most cases we wouldn't say, like, I hate the people that are against me. When we think about maybe people at work or maybe even people at home or people in the school, uh, people in the community, people around the world, if we looked at people that seemed against us, we might not be so quick to say, I hate you. But we would certainly kind of say, like, but I do severely dislike you, okay? Um, I have a friend that I'm pretty sure they're the reason you can't have a loaded pistol in the, in the passenger seat when you're driving because their road rage is unmatched, right? Like they're driving down the road, someone cuts them off. If they were allowed to have that, there'd be at least some flat tires uh, in that. They'd, they'd probably have a little hole in their windshield. They could just get the gun. I mean, it'd be bad. They're in counseling. They're trying to figure it out. But sometimes our response is pretty hateful, right? The, we, the way we would interact with people is kind of not, we're not very becoming of us. We're, we're not excited about how we might feel about people that wrong us. And so when Jesus says, love your we've heard it said, love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy, that's not that foreign if we really think about it. He continues though. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, some of this in this passage might sound weird to you. And that's normal. And it also would have sound weird to everybody that Jesus was physically talking to at that moment as well. You see, even in that cultural history there, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the priests, they would have agreed with that, like kind of take care of your own and don't worry about other people mindset. That was very, very normal. Some of you might be familiar with a, a, a story called the Good Samaritan. And I don't have time to get into that uh, in tons of detail this morning. But the Good Samaritan is basically this, where there's a guy that was beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road, and three people passed by, and the first two were religious leaders. And when they saw that person, the conclusion they came to is this person is not in my sphere of responsibility. I do not have to love them, and therefore I will move on. 
I don't have to. This would have been a very normal cultural response. And so for Jesus to say, but I tell you to love your enemies, this was something very new and very challenging to even the people he was talking to at the moment. And so we see that this actually matches up then with our current cultural inclination. We are very wired to want to push people aside to achieve what we want to achieve. Corporately, we hear this all the time, right? Where there are certain people um, that they just want to like, I don't care about your promotion. I don't care if you get a job or if you have, you know, a steady income here at this company. I need to move forward. I need to get that promotion. If you get it, that spot's filled and I can't have that happen. So I'm gonna, and we jockey for position. We do those things. And some of us, maybe that doesn't relate to our particular thing, but we're, maybe we're applying for a scholarship or maybe we're just in the age old competition of seeing every line at the grocery store completely full, but there's one that looks a little bit shorter and you emerge from the aisles at the same time as someone else. And you look at that short line and you get that like, you know, like, you know, like it's just kind of this instant dual thing you're about ready to go. And they have a very full cart. Like there's no way I want to get behind them. And so you like run and you're like pushing old ladies down. You're like, I will be first, you know, like, and I'm sure none of that relates to you or, you know, a tra- you see the traffic jam approaching and you think to yourself, should I be a kind, good-hearted citizen where we zipper in together and we just kind of make this happen and we'll all get through it eventually? Or you're like, I don't care about all these people. See ya. And you buzz down the side, right? You're just like right up in front and you're like, peace out. And everybody's telling you you're number one. You're like, I know, <laughs> right? And, and, and we are so willing to jockey for our own position, right? Like it's, it's very natural to kind of look at certain situations and say, yeah, you're my enemy and therefore I win. I'm in charge. My priorities are the best and the most important and therefore I am going to move ahead. This moves into opinions. This moves into ideologies. And as I was getting into all of the Hurricane Harvey relief stuff this week, um, I stumbled across a social media post that, uh, well, well, we'll read it together. We'll put it up here on the screen. And I purposefully blacked out who wrote it, but I just can't bring myself to even consider providing aid to any red state. Let them clean up their own mess. Why? They have God and the Republican Party to help them. Red states hate handouts. Let's not offend them. It's not wise to be generous to sociopaths that will never return it in kind. Red states screwed themselves. Any state that elects a Republican needs to be incinerated. There have to be severe consequences. The anger that's pouring through these words, I'll be honest, infuriated me this week. A state needs to be incinerated because they didn't vote the way that you did? Incinerate it? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, this is just some like, some young person flying off the handle, blah, blah, blah. This is the official social media of a charity organization. Their role in life is to respond to human crisis. And this is their official platform. Now they since apologized, took it down. I'm not sure if they fired the person that typed that in or not, but still... They're incensed by a differing of opinion to the point to where they're unwilling to help in crisis. Now, I'll be honest, my initial response was anger. <laughs> like, I wanted to go down to this charity. They're not local. I'd have flown, I'd have drove, whatever. I'd have gotten down there. And I wanted to walk in and I'm like, I'm a pretty big guy. How many of them can I punch before I get there? Like, I, I was ready to take some like physical, I was angry. I couldn't believe, and it doesn't, the red to blue state, I don't even care which is which. The fact that the categorization and then the hate of an entire group of people to where you don't care about any of their well-being, I couldn't believe it. And then I realized as I'm stewing in my own high blood pressure at the moment because of this event, that I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm upset at one person's action, and now I'm ready to like tear apart the, the entire reputation of an entire organization that, by the way, actually does some really good work. In the same way that they were willing to completely judge an entire state for a voting trend 
that ironically has nothing to do with Houston because Houston's blue. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And here I am, I'm like, oh my, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, yeah, you've heard it said to love the people that are like you and to hate those that aren't. And that's the category I found myself in this week. I was already amped up, ready to hate my enemy because of how they responded. And so as we look at what Jesus is challenging us to do, I realize that like the need for our heart to break for that mentality, that my heart hurts for someone with that much hate in them, that because they have a different opinion that I don't care if they live or die, that we have to change. Listen, I'm realizing I don't agree with everything my wife thinks. I don't, we don't agree with everything our parents think. If you are a parent, you don't agree with everything your kids think. You don't agree with everything that your best friend in the whole world thinks. You don't agree with everything God thinks. And we're ready to write people off in life or death situations because of one differing opinion. Man, my eyes and my heart were opened up wide this week as I'm looking at how is God challenging us to be a part of this? And then we see this trend on social media all the time, right? If you think blank about blank, we can't be friends. And like you, my heart is broken when I get unfriended on Facebook. <laughs> Ruins my half second, at least. Like, how am I going to deal with it? But I realized what's happening here, as I was, I was actually talking with Pastor Jeff this week about this topic, and, and Jeff because he's Jeff, he just had this instant quote about the concept. He goes, if we're willing to generalize something, we're willing to stereotype. And if we're willing to stereotype, we're willing to depersonalize. And if we're willing to depersonalize, I don't have to love you. If I'm willing to put something in a generic category, your political affiliation, your racial background, your views on certain policy, the way in which you parent, whatever it might be. I generalize that, and then when someone operates that way, I stereotype. Yep, you fall into that stereotype. Yep, see, told you. And then you depersonalize it, because now the people that think that way, I think this about. I put them all in one category, and then you begin to depersonalize. They should be incinerated because they think this way. And because I can depersonalize them, I have no problem not loving them. If we allow ourselves to go down that spiral, we're gonna find ourselves and certainly the people around us in big trouble. Life is not about just volleying anger back and forth. Just because you wrong me doesn't mean I need to wrong you. Two wrongs doesn't make a right. Two wrongs makes a lot more wrong. And then we just keep pushing it back to each other because I'm right and you're wrong and you need that proven to you. And it doesn't work that way. Life is more than just how many likes can I get on social media or how many comments can I get stirred up because I'm not trying to cause a scene, but no offense, but. And we love to see the response of all these people chiming in with their opinions and we love to see the arguments happen because we feel like somehow it's validating our place. But we're not promoting love, we're promoting dissonance. And this is where Jesus steps in in this passage and he tells us, if we're gonna be different, if, we're gonna, if you're gonna follow me, it's gonna look weird and I need us to love our enemies, to love our enemies. Now, this isn't just having mushy, gushy feelings inside about how we feel about the people that we would deem our enemies. This is actually wishing and wanting that they, like goodwill would happen in their life, that things would be different, that they would see a different way of living, that they would see the grace and the mercy of God, that they would actually have a life that begins to erase the things that are causing the very hate or the animosity in them to begin with. You see, Christians to be known as a follower of Jesus should have that weird love in them. It should be one of the things that we're constantly known for. 
But it's not just a certain grouping of people that we need to love. And so if we look at another stereotypical grouping of people that sometimes causes some back and forth opinion, let's talk about refugees for a moment. And if you don't know, the Bible would call us that we need to love refugees. And that's for a plethora of reasons, not just simply because they're refugees. But we're called to love them. But not just them. We're also called to love the people that are willing to help refugees. And we're also called to love the people who make policy about refugees. And we're also called to love the people that can't stand refugees. And we're also called to even love the people that created the heinous environment that caused refugees to exist in the first place. Jesus calls us and challenges us to love all of those people in there appropriately, no matter where they fall into those categories. It's not just the tip of the spear. It's not just the easy ones. It's also the really hard ones. You see, God is calling us to give the same compassion the same slowness to anger and the same patience to others that he gives to us. And we might ask ourselves, well, how on earth could I ever step into that type of love? And it's like Jesus knew that he was asking, we were gonna ask that question because he continues, I want you to pray for those who persecute you. I want you to pray. Now, sometimes that can sound like a, almost a cheap response, like, oh, okay, I'll just pray for him. But I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't talking about, dear God, my boss is a jerk, amen. Okay, like pretty sure that's not what he intended when it was pray for your enemies, right? And it, def it wasn't this either, right? Like, dear God, my boss needs incinerated, amen. Like, okay, that's not the type of prayer I don't think he's encouraging either. What I do think he's suggesting is when you pray for someone, when you pray for something, your heart is drawn to that thing, you begin to see that thing the way that God does. You begin to see it with the same compassion, with the same eyes, with the same patience, with the same understanding, with the same 30,000 foot view of their life that God does. You begin to realize that, that person that you're praying for is, is lost somehow, some way, they're stuck in sin. They're, they're, they're off. They can't figure something out. They're hopeless. Their life situation is terrible. Something in their life has led them to the point of interacting and acting in these ways. And when we begin to pray for them, our heart begins to actually break for them because God sees them uniquely as if it's a lost child that he wants to see brought back to them. So we have an opportunity to kind of engage in that mindset as well. And it doesn't matter if it's a bully at school. It doesn't matter if it's the jerk at work. It doesn't matter if it's someone in the home. If we pray for them, our heart actually begins to mold after God's and we can see them for who they are and what's actually at stake here. Now, Jesus continues in this passage and he begins to look at the different ways in which everybody tries to love some people. And he starts to say like, well, if you start to love the people that you already love, isn't that kind of what the, the tax collectors do? Which in that day and age, that was about as bad as you could get. Isn't that what the pagans already do? Isn't, isn't that what people that don't know me are already doing? How is that somehow special? You see, the word pagan actually means just non-Jewish. In the cultural context that they were in, that just meant someone that did not have the religious understanding that a Jew had. That's it. It didn't really mean a whole lot other by it. But you see, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. They had had the revelation of God in their life. He spoke to them. He gave them certain words in the scriptures. He actually was helping guide them and teaching them what it meant to follow God. So when you designated someone as a pagan, you understood that, well, what possible expe expectations could I place on you? You don't even know God in the first place. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, these people that you don't have any expectations of, they're already loving the people that love them. They're already engaging the lovable and ignoring the unlovable. So as a follower of God, as a follower of Jesus, like it's kind of a whoop-de-doo situation. That's like loving your parents when they do everything you ask and give you everything you want. Like, yeah, I love my mom and dad. They're the best. 
right? That's loving your professor when the assignments are easy, they give you good grades, and they're nice to you in class. Like, man, it's the best professor ever. I love them, right? When your boss doesn't make you work that hard and they're always applauding you for even the simplest of things, you're like, I'm the best boss in the world, right? Like, I love my boss, right? When your kids listen to, well, that never happens. So when you're, uh, right, when your spouse does stuff, the right things around the house or they sleep with you enough and you're like, yeah, I love my spouse. But then the, depending upon the category, they start to break that mold and then you start to question, do I love this person? And Jesus is saying, yeah, isn't that what the pagans do? Isn't that what everybody does? Isn't that what people that don't, like, okay, good job, you love the people that you love. What about everybody else? And his challenge goes much farther than that. And so Jesus gives a really simple solution right at the end of that passage, an easy step. All he says is, just be perfect. That's all you gotta do. Done deal, just be perfect. And we're like, Wait, what? That's all, that, I, what? <laughs> but you see, he says, as your heavenly father is perfect. And in the context here, what he's talking about is this idea that your heavenly father is complete. He's whole. And this includes the fact that he is merciful and that he's compassionate and that he is slow to anger and that he sees the whole picture, not just the momentary thing that's making you so angry. So be compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, just as your heavenly father is those things. You see, Jesus is calling us to tap into the character of God, to follow after him, to be motivated and begin thinking like and acting like Jesus does. We see in a different passage here that I, I love where Jesus is actually helping us start to grab a definition of what does this type of relationship look like. And in John 15, uh, he said, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's again a view of that completeness. I am completely loving you. Now here's, here's the odd thing that Jesus did, right? He gave his entire life he sacrificed himself on the cross. So Jesus, these weren't just words that Jesus was like, you know, all you gotta do is lay down your life for your friends. But then we also have to think, well, who did he lay down his life for? Did Jesus lay his life down for his friends and his followers and the people that lined up with his ideologies and the people that were excited about the way that he taught and the people that he had dinner with? No, because even those people in his life deserted him in the last hour. Jesus died for his enemies, for the people that wanted nothing to do with him, for the people that persecuted him, for the people that spat in his face, for the people that beat him, for the people that nailed him to a wooden beam and hung him up on a cross to suffocate on a cross. And just in case you're thinking like, well, that's kind of a stretch, while he was on the cross, talking about the people that had just beat him and tortured him and spit on him and were mocking him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus didn't die for all the people that would eventually follow him. He died for everyone. And the apostle Paul kind of sums that idea up in Romans 5 and verse 8. He says, God demonstrates his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still lost in our sexual sin, while we were still lost holding our racist grudges for whatever reason, while we were being completely unethical cheaters and liars, pushing people aside, while we were getting into fistfights for no reason in school, while we were bullying people, while we were being hateful towards our neighbor, Christ died for us. We need him. And Jesus gives us this example of how the complete sacrifice of himself is the love that he's calling us to. You see, in so many relationships, we are so tempted to have this kind of 50-50 understanding. 
where if, if you're nice to me, I will be nice to you. If you do what I ask, I'll do some things for you. If you agree with me, I would love to be your friend. It's 50-50. You do your part, I'll do mine. And Jesus shows us a different way, a weird way. He says relationships, when it comes to loving other people, is 100-0. I will give you everything. I will sacrifice myself, expecting nothing in return. I will love you. This is the idea of submission, When we see submission in the scriptures constantly, over and over and over again, we see this theme of what it means to give the best of ourselves to others. I will give the best of myself to you. When marriage is rocky and you're at odds with each other, I will give the best of myself to you. When your kids are screaming in your face and they're yelling at you, I will give the best of myself to you. When your professor is wronging you and they told you to do one thing and they graded you as if something else was the expectation, I will respect and honor and love you and navigate the situation appropriately. When people have a different ideology, we have to understand that people hold different opinions about things. I'm going to love you not just because I assume one day you'll begin to agree with me. If we're gonna love like Jesus, then when people disagree with us, we need to love them like Jesus loves them. If people hold different viewpoints on life than we do, we're gonna love them like Jesus loves them. If they're acting in a way that we think is awful, we need to love them like Jesus loves them. If they're ignoring our preferences, if they're yelling in our face, if they're defaming our family or defaming our faith, we love them like Jesus loves them, like he did. And he, he sacrificed himself on the cross in the midst of all of that. Loving our enemies is a big deal. And yet it's what often will change the very nature of what's happening. I just got back from Africa last Monday and uh, in one of my long uh, flights, there was this 14-year-old boy, 14 or 15-year-old boy, about two rows ahead of me. And you just tend to notice things on a plane when you're traveling, right? And I happened to notice this kid, I see him just grab a wine cooler off the, off the cart when the flight attendant goes by. And the flight attendant didn't notice. And I'm like, should I say something, you know? And I decide for the moment at least, no. Then I see him grab another one. Uh, um, (laughs) His parents are with him, so I'm kind of like, they'll probably see eventually. He can't drink it. Like, okay. Then eventually the flight attendant sees him grab one. And so she kind of lays into him like, you're not even 14 years old. You can't grab, what are you doing? She starts collecting him. And I realize I missed a bunch of his grabs. He had about 20 wine coolers. I mean, she's literally like, you can't have these, you know, and she's got this huge stack. You're gonna get, like, and I'm like, wow, this kid's got some like quick hands, you know? And I'm like, but serves him right. He can't steal. He can't be an underage drinker. Yeah, that you tell him. Flight attendant walks away. His parents and grandpa just hand him a wine cooler and he starts, I'm like, you, are you, no, no. You're, you're rewarding theft and underage drinking? You don't, no. And I'm telling you, you guys, ever, you guys see that video of the guy being drugged off United flight? I was about to be the next one. I was about to hop over my seat like, you can't do that. You know, like, oh my gosh. Like the, the temptation to beat an entire family was so high for me at the moment. <laughs> I couldn't get over it. But what did I do in that moment, right? Obviously, I'm not YouTube gold right now. I did not get up and start pummeling people. Okay, like what did it, what, I, I, I slowed down. But the appropriate response is not to do wrong, to teach the wrong person a lesson because what would have happened? What would a bloody 15-year-old have learned in the context, right? That, that teenager is not gonna look up and go, you know, I thought it was okay that I stole this alcohol, but then this big American beat me, and now I see the glory of God, and I know 
that's not going to be his response, right? Like he's going to be like, this jerk of a guy and I'm the victim. And his parents will be like, yeah, this crazy American, just can you believe? And that's why America, they wouldn't have learned a thing if I would have responded the right way and how, in terms of how I felt in the moment, right? And we do this all the time. There are people in my life that momentarily I hate. My parents sometimes really get on my nerves. My wife sometimes really gets on my nerves. My little kid, she's, she's a two. You know, if you have a little kid, you know that age. Sometimes, for a moment, I feel like I hate people that I love. And I have an option. I can submit to the process and love them and give my best to them or I can respond and destroy my life. I can become the abusive father. I can become the scapegoat. Hey, I'm out of here, honey. If you're not gonna, I'm done because I hate you at this moment. Mom, dad, we're done. You made me angry. I'm done. No, we, we, we submit and we offer ourselves to them. And it makes sense most of the time with those that are close to us because everybody makes us mad from time to time. But then as that circle gets farther and farther away, we tend to be w less willing to love the way that Christ calls us to love. Volleying anger allowing ourselves to see others as pagans or just people not like us and therefore I can generalize them, depersonalize them and I don't have to love them. It gets us nowhere. So how do we do something about it? What's a step that we need to take then to start loving like Jesus does? And I think it's a very, for me, I think it's a very simple step and I think we need to go meet somebody. I think we need to go talk with the person or the people that we're angry with, that we have hate for, that we're unexcited to love and bring the person back to the situation. As I mentioned, I just got back from Africa and many of you, if I said today, hey, why don't we get on a plane in a week or two from now and let's fly to Africa. We're gonna go to this village in the Sahara Desert and we're gonna talk with a group of people that doesn't have a written language. They've never heard of the name Jesus before. We wanna love them. We wanna engage them. We're gonna be talking to them. By the way, they don't speak English. They don't speak French. They don't speak any language that you probably speak, but we're gonna go over there. We're gonna start talking to them. We're gonna start ministering to them. Most of you in the room would like break into cold sweats. Like, what did you just ask me to do? There's no way I could do that. This is my third time coming back from Chad. By no means am I uh, a full-on expert on what it means to travel to those places like some people are. But what I can tell you is when you build a relationship with someone, it deteriorates those barriers that once were in front of you. For me, getting in hours and hours and hours of flights, watching a family raise their child wrong, getting to a different country, showing up in the Sahara Desert, driving off into a village, passing camels as they walk by, and the craziest driving you've ever experienced to meet with a culture that doesn't speak any English, has never heard of the name of Jesus, makes total sense to me because I've met them and I know them and I love them and I've hugged them and I've shared meal with them and I've engaged them and I know their story and I know it's incredible it breaks down those barriers. Some of you, if I said, hey, let's, let's go to the worst neighborhood that you could think of right now here locally in the Akron area. Let's go down there right now to this afternoon and let's start talking with people, serving people. Some of you would break into cold sweats. I, I purposefully avoid those neighborhoods. I couldn't possibly. There's no way. I don't think. And I can tell you, I have no problem whatsoever going into those neighborhoods. And it has nothing to do with the, I have no problem going down there because I've met the people that live in those neighborhoods. I know them by names, but like I've met people there. It personalizes the situation. I love, tutored some of these individuals. We've, I've worked, it breaks down the barrier of what's there. What breaks, it's almost like Jesus knew what he, 
because it's what breaks all of the junk. So if we're going to start breaking through this mold and allow the character of God that he has infused into our being as a follower of his, as to we have to go meet the people. We have to actually be willing to go feed someone that's hungry. We have to be willing to go help the kid that has cancer. Step down and go help someone that's battling a heroin addiction, that's battling a pornography addiction. Go meet them. Go to go to her, even the jerk one, and go love them. Get to know their story. Go play with and teach a little kid. Go make yourself available to mentor a teenager that so desperately needs someone positive in their life. Go fix someone's car or, or be a part of helping them figure that out. Go paint someone's house. Go talk to someone that has a different viewpoint than you on sexuality and get to know them as a person. What drew them to that conclusion? What, what drives them? What makes them tick? What makes them click? Because judging people and pushing them down never convinced anybody of anything. With the one caveat that I, I've noticed, that if you get in all capital letters on social media and you put your opinion out there in an angry way, it's amazing how many minds will change. No. <laughs> that doesn't work. Because shoving our opinions onto people doesn't work. Jesus didn't say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But what I tell you is shove opinions down their throat. That'll change them. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said to love your enemies. Love the people that don't think like you. Love the people you disagree with. Spend the afternoon talking to an inmate at a local jail. Give the homeless guy or the homeless family a place to crash. Help them figure that out. Take some time off and go help someone in desperate need in, in Houston. Go do. Go actually meet someone and engage them and love them. If we want to be known for the love that Jesus has for us, if we're going to have that same weird path that he had, where he loved other people and obviously he changed millions and billions of lives that have engaged his way. If we want to be a part of that, then we have to be willing to take that step. Now the last caveat here is I'm personally knowing that there's one big barrier in the way of doing this. And it's us. This week, as I'm walking through all this stuff, it's amazing how I'm like, God, we have to love people. I want to do this. I want to do this. And then I take like one step away and I'm like, priority schedule. I got to do this. I got to get this done, blah, 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 blah. My pathway gets in the way of what God's calling us to do. My priorities fight against what God is calling us to do. My dreams, my hopes, my legacy are in the way. I'm not going to be remembered that long after I die. And I don't mean that in a bleak way. I just mean even, let's call it a hundred years. If I do a really good job, people might know the name of Joe Caruso. Jesus' name will last forever. I want to spend my life helping people know his love, not the fact that I was decent-ish at life. His priorities, his love, his engagement of people of all walks, all opinions, all ethics, to bring them to himself, to show them what real life is all about. That's what I want to be known for. And the other way that I get in the way is sometimes I think people don't deserve it. But what I'm finding is the moments that I feel like that the most, I'm forgetting how much I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I'd be in jail right now if it weren't for Jesus. I almost guarantee it. I guarantee it. I would not be married to my wife right now. Not because there's anybody else, but like <laughs> she would never have married me. 
I would be a totally different, deplorable, awful person if it weren't for Jesus. I have an addictive personality. I got in plenty of fights and bullied people through school. That, on that trajectory into adulthood, I'd have been an awful individual. And sometimes I'm not that far from it now, but Jesus has redeemed an awful lot and given me a different path. When I forget that, is when I'm the most tempted not to think that other people should find Jesus too. So whenever I look at someone and go, you don't deserve God's grace, I have to remember, either did I. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's something that he offers freely if we turn to him and follow him. To be known as a follower of Christ, as a little Jesus, as someone that walks in the way after him, to follow the words of, I, need, I wanna love my enemies and I wanna pray for those that persecute him. We have to ask God and we have to continue to connect with God and allow his character, his heart, his compassion, his weird love to shine through us for other people. As the band comes out, the lyrics of the songs that we're about to use them as a prayer Allow God to start showing you the people or the groups of people in your life that you have a hard time loving. Write them down, make a note, start praying for them. Maybe even this moment, in a few minutes, during the music, whatever it takes. But let's do everything we can to be known the way that Jesus was for his weird love and how he worked with other people. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the love that you've given to me. I don't deserve it. Left to my own, I would destroy nearly every relationship that's in my life, if not all of them. God, I'm, I'm prone to be selfish. And I desperately need your help if I'm ever gonna be known as someone that loves people. And I do want to be known for that because I think the love that you give is incredible. I want to help other people find it. I want to help other people see you for who you are. I want to be known for and I want all of us to be known for as the people of the love of Christ. God, bring to our minds the people that we have a hard time loving and remind us to continue to pray for them. Change our hearts, guide us, mold us, make us into your image, help us to love the way that you do. And God, whether we've been following you for decades or whether we're exploring who you are, I pray that even now, the, the re realization of your love and who you are and how you care for people would be transformative for us that you would change us, that we would see you fresh and new and that we would follow after you wholeheartedly. It's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.